I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today went to the University of Portland on a tennis academic scholarship. His passion for tennis originated from his mom, who was one of the regional directors under the structure of the USTA. Michael's career has taken him through classic companies, beginning at Gallo Wine and Sales and moving into Amerisports, and then to Nike, and then back to Amer and running Wilson on a global basis. His leadership style is strategic, genuine, and sincere. He's able to build incredible relationships because of his consistency in how he treats people. And his success with the USTA will be a result of his innate skill set as it relates to establishing relationships and developing trust with his various stakeholders. Our guest, Mike Douse. Welcome, friends. Our guest has been really going through difficult times uh, and challenges. Uh, when first recruited to the USTA, Michael Douse had no idea what was awaiting him. And when he began in January, uh, he ended up running into a pandemic and into a, a U.S. Open that the rules kept changing on. So, Mike, it's uh, great to have you aboard. And uh, really, I'd like to take a couple snapshots of the things in your career that you think have really helped position you for your role leading the USTA. Thanks, Jed. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Love what you do for sports and look forward to our discussion. I think maybe to answer your question, you know, what kind of inspires or leads me is, of course, learning from the people I've worked with over the years. One of the books, and uh, it's actually a, a tennis person, Peter Burwash, wrote the 22 Principles of Leadership several decades ago. And there's two or three things I've always taken out of that. One of them is uh, to be even keel and calm through crisis. And of course, uh, as you mentioned in the prelude, that we had a few crises, not unique to tennis, but just you know, the broader society with the pandemic, some of the social unrest we had in our country, and a lot of things we had to deal with. But uh, I think having a great team, being even keeled and being principally driven have really helped us uh, get through this the last few years. And remarkably, uh, the silver lining is tennis is booming. And that's our mission is to grow and promote the sport of tennis. And we have over 4 million new players playing tennis today versus 2019. What's been the key initiatives that you've been able uh, to promote? Well, I think the key to tennis, and of course, we were assisted by the pandemic in a strange way. You think about during the heights of the pandemic, actually in March, of 20, so about 65, 70 days into this role is when the pandemic really hit. We did a survey and 92% of all tennis facilities and tennis coaches were either closed or out of business. So our sport had hit rock bottom. And uh, when that pandemic hit, what, what did we all do, right? We all went inside, we're in lockdowns, couldn't be outside. And so everything we missed was socialization, 
exercise, fresh air, and fun. And I think as we learned that the, the COVID and the pandemic or the disease wasn't uh, transferable via touch and tennis balls, et cetera, people realized tennis gives me everything I've been missing. I can be outside. It's social. It's fun. Even indoors, it was proven to be safe. And so people really gravitated to outdoor sports and individual sports. Uh, but I think tennis has been the big winner of it. Talk about how you're structured. I mean, our audience doesn't understand you know, how the USTA works in terms of your different organizations and sections around the around the country. I mean, we've had traditional people on the run sports, and yours is very different more political, more issues that you have to deal with. So your leadership style in terms of what you brought to this, it was really unique. The way I look at the USTA is on the spectrum, on one end of the spectrum, and many people don't know this, we host the world's largest annual sporting event for the US Open. In a non-pandemic COVID year, we have nearly 800,000 fans attend our tournament. The World Cup is bigger, but that happens every four years. So for an every or annual event, we are the world's largest. So that's the world's biggest megaphone, biggest stage we have to promote tennis. And on the other end of the spectrum, as you mentioned, we have 17 sections throughout the United States. And within those sections, we also have district offices. So roughly about 35 entities out in the field that have their own boards uh, and their own staffs. But to me, it is tricky, but when we get those two things working together, the U.S. Open and the money it generates for our, ourselves as the governing body of sport, we then have people out in the trenches, what I call hand-to-hand -hand combat, putting rackets in the hands of new tennis players. And we have that infrastructure in place. So the magic is aligning those pipes to make it happen and get the funds from the U.S. Open out to our sections and our districts, ultimately to providers and parks and schools to introduce people to the sport. So that's the vision. Getting it done can be tricky uh, many times because uh, there's a lot of voices and different opinions on how we do it. But at the end of the day, we're all still guided by our mission of growing and promoting the sport of tennis. You grew up with a sales and branding background, starting a Gallo line at that point was one of the top consumer companies uh, in the world. And then working with Amerisports, which people would recognize Wilson. But as you look at how you developed your career from a sales and branding perspective. What have you transferred over into this new role? Well, I think one of the big things, again, it's a people business, right? You need to uh, connect and make sure you get everyone on the same page. Uh, it, it's really, it's the basics of business. It's, there's, it's no magic formula. It's people. It's being principally driven. You mentioned Gallo and Wilson. I actually was fortunate enough to work for Nike and, and something I learned at Nike they always said people first at Nike, brand second, business third. And if you followed things in that cadence or that order or that priority, the business would usually take care of itself if you got the people right and the brand right. And I, I say similar to uh, here at the USTA, we say people first. Let's get the people right and our culture right. We put the interest of tennis second. And if we do that, the business takes care of itself. So that's really what I've learned over the years. And that's a formula that appears to work. So have you done anything unique branding-wise since you've taken over in terms of you mentioned that the, you got four, you have 4 million new players, but what have you done from that standpoint in terms of the USTA brand, how that may have adjusted or whatever? Right. I think the biggest thing, we, we don't ever want to be seen as a stodgy old uh, governing body of sport. 
And when we say our, our mission is to grow and promote the sport of tennis, it's not just USTA tennis. So I think from a branding uh, perspective, what I'm really trying to push is we're not necessarily just in the programming business of programming and selling or promoting USTA programs, but it's there to serve the whole tennis ecosystem. So we've taken a big step in that direction culturally, that we're here to serve the entire industry. So that could fall under the umbrella of branding. And the second thing, we, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. Open is our platform and our megaphone to promote the virtues of tennis. And we play off the terms, be open. We really want to demonstrate the sport of tennis is open to all people. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we still have that stigmatism as maybe a white elitist sport. And it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we try to eliminate as many barriers as we can to our sport and then demonstrate that we are truly open to all people. So a year ago, if we flash back to what the environment was like in New York City and trying to host an open with no spectators and being able to go through all the COVID protocols that you had to deal with, whether it be the city, county or state, talk a little bit about how you managed all that. Yeah, Jed, that was honestly one of the more complicated things, if not the most complicated thing ever in my professional career. And you mentioned that the city, the state, we had Nassau County, and of course the federal government. So we had four different legal entities that we had to get aligned. First of all, at the federal level, we have players coming in from over 66 countries around the world. Uh, so getting them in actually turned out the, the, the federal government was very helpful in, in allowing us to get those athletes and their support staff in. And then the city government, the state government, and even the, the county government, all was very supportive to help make this, ha make this happen. You can imagine how different those perspectives were from those different entities at the time. Uh, so we were able to pull that together. But as I talked about earlier, we went into that very principally uh, driven whether we should even play the U.S. Open. As, as you can imagine, there was a lot of naysayers of people who said we shouldn't have played in the height of the pandemic. But we said, number one, if we could do it in a healthy and safety, safe way for all people, I mean, the players, the, um, our staff, the citizens of New York, we'd move to the next box to check. And two, is it going to be good for our sport of tennis? And if it was going to be good for our sport of tennis, did it three make financial sense? So we kept anchoring all our decision making back to those three principles. And at the end of the day, we checked all three. We pulled it off. and It was extremely, extremely successful. Of course, if you think about the uh, the, May, the the Grand Slams, when you go through the order, you were the only people that participated there in terms of being able to make that happen. Yeah, we were very fortunate. Um, just again, through great collaboration through, you know, we mentioned that the government entities, you know, state, uh, city, county, and federal, as well as we put together a medical advisory group of infectious disease experts. And they really guided us along the way to set the protocol that made the governments uh, comfortable with our policies and how we ran the event. So what was it like this year to have fans? And how did you determine how many fans and were they going to wear masks? And how did that all, how did you work the formula on that? Well, the first answer was fantastic to have fans. <laughs> you had a chance to watch it on TV. Oh, the energy was crazy. I know the McEnroe brothers who were commentating for HPN talked about the literally think it was the loudest crowds they've ever experienced in all their years of U.S. Opens, decades, and it's the loudest. So it's just great to have back. Again, we worked closely with the governments. Uh, the policy did change three days before the tournament in that uh, as far as fans, we were not going to be required to uh, have proof of vaccination to enter the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. But that did change a few days before. 
and we felt it wasn't up to us to question uh, the guidance from the government. So our team quickly rallied around changing the protocol, getting the messaging out to our fans and our ticket holders, and putting policies and procedures in place to make that happen. We were able to pull it off. And we're really happy. Our fans, we're at about 85% of what we were in 2019, which was our biggest year ever. And keep in mind, about 25% of our fans are generally outside of the country. So really not having access to them this year and still being at 85% capacity was, was pretty fun and exciting. Talk about those final matches. They were, you know, some people didn't know some of the participants. So talk a little bit about how that created excitement for you and your organization and our fans. Yeah, and Jed, that kind of goes back to your ticket question earlier. Uh, before the tournament, the narrative was no Roger, no Rafa, no Serena, and it was hurting our ticket sales. Fast forward to week two, some of our highest viewership, social media engagement ever as brand new stars and stories came up. Carlos Alcaraz from Spain, the young 18-year-old Spaniard, riveted everyone. And of course, in the women's side, it was crazy. We had Emma Raducanu winning it at 18 years of age against Leila Fernandez, also another teenager. And that it was the first time actually in the history of the USTO, USTA, um, or the US Open, I should say, that the viewership for the women's surpassed the viewership of the men's, which again speaks to our sport being open to all, right? Um, well, some prize yeah. money being equal for everyone. Yeah, and we've done that for over 40 years. We've been right. pioneers in that area. So our numbers uh, coming out of the gate were a little slow because of the, uh, call it the traditional household names. But boy, new stars emerged. And of course, there was the great story of Novak Djokovic take, chasing his grand slam and getting all the way to the finals and losing a tough one to Daniel Medvedev. No, that was a, an incredible match. I mean, again, sitting on the edge of your seat. And um, how, how, in terms of viewership, uh, how did uh, had your viewership compared in the past? Yeah, we're still getting the final numbers in, but we're back to 2019 levels. 2020, we were down quite a bit. As you know, all sports were down in 2020 as far as viewership. But we're back to our historical highs of 19. And again, it really got back in loaded in the second half uh, of the tournament or second week as all these new stars emerged. Uh, it was really exciting to see. So, And we know some of our great champions who weren't there will be back. We, we hope they get healthy. So we see some great storytelling going forward. You know, the past champions versus some of these new young superstars that will make for some great drama at tennis courts. You know, one of the things on, on a personal level, uh, when you first joined, my neighbor, you know, happens to be the son of, of Peter and Regina Corda, who were both highly successful tennis players, uh, one who won the Australian Open, Regina, who played on their U.S. Uh, Olympic team. Right. So they have a young son. Uh, that's not so young anymore, but Sebastian Corda has begun to make his mark on on men's tennis. So talk a little bit about your our men's uh, younger players that are starting to come up and what that's like. And if you want to uh, comment on Sebi, uh, feel free. Yeah. Jed, I talked about the, the great storylines of the U.S. Open or new storylines. And one of them I'd remiss to talk about is the number of new U.S. players. I mean, it's no secret we haven't had a male champion in, in several years, and that's something we desperately would like to see. But uh, we actually had more American men draw, uh, 22, I think it was, more than any other country. So 22 of the players were American, and the majority of those are under 22 years of age. So the crop of young Americans coming up on the men's side is incredible. And of course, in the women's, we've had great dominance uh, with many Grand Slam champions over the last 10 years with Venus and Serena. 
Sonia Cannon, Anderson Key, Sloan Stevens. I know I'm forgetting people. There's so many on the women's side, but uh, on the women's side, we also had 24 players in the main draw. And the Cordes are truly a special family, and they're great ambassadors of our sport. You know, unfortunately, Sebi, who's been playing great tennis, uh, fell ill, was not COVID, but fell ill uh, in the uh, first round and was not able to compete or finish his match. But we know he's got a bright future, and we're excited to see how his game develops. From a player development perspective, since you've taken over, have you done anything different in terms of trying to enhance that that part of our uh, and part of the game? And talk about the great facility you have. Right. Well, player development. We always say the best formula for it is more players. It's a numbers game, you know. And as I mentioned, with four million new players, uh, as far as a player development perspective, we'll see those dividends start to pay off 10, 15, 20 years from now as those young kids that have come to the sport recently start to develop and become players. So that's the first thing we do. As far as our facilities, if you're not, I know you're familiar with it, but if some of your listeners aren't, we have a hundred court facility here in Orlando, public facility open to all. And within that, we have a college center that has 12 courts. So uh, it's maybe, you know, we hosted the NCAAs here this year, which was fabulous. Uh, And then on our player development side, uh, we have the, the red clay courts, the same red clay that's at Roland Garros. And of course, we have all the hard courts here that mimic our U.S. Open services. And it's just a fabulous place to train. And speaking of Americans and players and player development, just yesterday I had lunch with Mackie McDonald, another one of our young Americans who's uh, now in the top 40 or top 50 and having a a bright and, and successful year. So it's just good energy to have all these players and people down here training together. So when you look at the future of tennis, what does it look like to you two to three years out? I'm optimistic because, you know, there's the old thing, is it a fad or trend when something takes off? And I was a little concerned last year coming out of that, the initial phases of coming out of the pandemic, that it might be a little fad that we see this blip in tennis. But here we are 18 months into the growth of the sport and the numbers continue to get better. So I'm optimistic that, again, the pandemic and our ability to, US, to use US Open to to talk about the benefits of the sport is truly creating a fad that's, or a trend, I should say, that's going to last another 5, 10, 15 years. Because our sport, it's incredible. When you go walk around, if I walk out my door today to these 100 courts, there's literally five-year-olds out there playing tennis, and there's 80-year-olds out there playing tennis. So we're really excited about the future of tennis. When you think about your governance model, in your role, your chairman, your chain rotates. So being able to, when you look at uh, golf, and you look at some of the other sports that have the same kind of uh, governance structure, how do you stay aligned as the people rotate those chairs so that the vision stays consistent and then you're not moving from right to left? So, Jed, that's a very good question. Um, And historically, that's been a challenge for the USTA with a new chairperson coming in. There was a new strategy set every two years. Um, but as you know, several years ago, I guess it's been, if I do my math right, three to four years ago, the board had the wisdom and vision to say, we have to set a long-term strategic plan. So one of the, at that point, one of our officers, Mike Nolte, who's now our chair today, headed up a task force to go work with our 17 sections and different stakeholders in the industry to come up with our five strategic priorities that the, the, the association committed to supporting for at least five years, if not 10 years. So that's been nice. Uh, moved from Pat Galbraith, who supported the five strategic uh, priorities, 
Now Mike has endorsed him, and I, I know our officers are also supporting him. So that's really, I'm optimistic that's going to help us continue, and it's probably played a role in, in the recent surge we've seen in tennis as an association we align against those five strategic priorities. I think the other piece that you had lots of different work experiences, working abroad and so forth, and that you know, what we found is that when, we, when people join roles and they come from vertical integration as opposed to broad-based integration where you've been different companies, different roles, and, and so forth, it helps you navigate uh, the environment when you come in because you can pull from different sectors of experience. Has that been helpful in your mind in terms of making the adjustment? I do. And, and I go back to a philosophy, you know, it starts with, regardless of the structure or complexity of association, it starts with a shared vision and mission, and then uh, an aligned team to make sure the team's working together, then over communicating that vision and mission. So we're all on the same page, always working towards that vision and mission, and then ultimately driving, holding ourselves accountable, you know, rewarding performance when we're achieving that, and frankly, readjusting or making changes that we're not achieving our goals. So we follow that virtuous circle, regardless of the complexity of an organization. It really helps keep the, the group, the business, the association, the organization on track. Well, again, I really admire the, the way you've handled the challenges you've faced and the way you've moved forward and the excitement that the U.S. Open has created for tennis and for the association. So congratulations on uh, what you've achieved to date. I know the way you work, you've got a lot more aspirations ahead of you. Well, Jed, I appreciate it. And I, like I said at the beginning, I love everything you do for sports, and uh, we all have a passion for it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you being our guest today, Mike. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jed.